Hey y'all, welcome to What a Crime to Be Alive. This is Pinky. And I'm Carly. And today we are going to be talking about the murder of Anne Marie Fahey. But before we get started, I want to go ahead and say, I'll remind you at the end of the episode, but next week we are taking Thanksgiving off. So there will be no episode next week. And we've officially decided to post on Fridays. Um, that'll definitely help us um, have an extra day to just get everything together and to post on time consistently. So thanks for your input on that. And now we're going to get started. According to a 1999 article in the Baltimore Sun, on June 27, 1996, Anne-Marie Fahey went to dinner at a local Italian restaurant with her boyfriend, Thomas Capano. The restaurant was Ristorante Panorama, and it was located in Philadelphia, where they both were living. That dinner date was the last time Anne-Marie was seen alive. Thomas Capano was a member of a well-established family of Delaware land developers and contractors. He became a rich, well-connected lawyer, state prosecutor, and political consultant. Anne-Marie was also part of another prominent family and worked as a scheduler for former Governor Thomas Carper. And as I am looking at these notes, I'm going to ask you, Carly, I saw that she was also part of a prominent family in one article. And then another article that I was looking at right before I came over here, it said that she struggled a bit growing up. I think maybe... I don't know, but struggled. I, it, it made it seem like she struggled, her family struggled financially. Did you see anything about that? Um, so the only thing that I saw was that she did struggle, her family struggled, um, and that her, I want to say that it was her, um, either her mother or father, one was on drugs really bad and wasn't a part of her life. Um, so that left only one person to provide, and oftentimes she would... Um, not know where her next meal was coming from she would come home the electricity would not be on the water would not be on those types of things yes and I think it was the mother um we'll have to fact check that but I think the mother was absent so I'm going to lean towards that I don't know why my initial note said she was part of a prominent family um maybe maybe they were and then things kind of fell apart but that doesn't really matter Seeing as Capano and Anne-Marie both ran in political circles, they eventually met in 1994 and almost instantly became interested in one another. However, the two could never make their relationship public because Tom was married with two children. Apparently, this would be Anne-Marie's first experience as a mistress, but Tom was no stranger to infidelity. According to an article on Medium.com written by Lori Johnston, Tom already had several affairs, and at the time he met Anne-Marie, he was in a 15-year affair with a woman by the name of Deborah McIntyre. Deborah was not only a friend of Tom's wife, but she was the ex-wife of Tom's former legal partner. Anne-Marie and Tom officially began dating privately in March of 1994. She kept a diary and detailed her on-and-off relationship with Tom. In her diary, we also learned that she was seeking treatment from a therapist for her self-esteem issues that resulted in anorexia and bulimia. However, she hid the relationship with Tom from the therapist as well as her family and friends. In addition to hiding her relationship from the people around her, she hid her mental issues and eating disorders. Tom was well aware of these issues, though. He used his wealth to buy her expensive gifts, 
repair her car, and treat her to fancy dinners. Initially, this was appealing to Anne-Marie and helped soothe her mind as she dealt with her ailments. But Tom was actually using his money as a means of control. Tom was older, powerful, and a womanizer, so he assumed his gifts and constant phone calls kept Anne-Marie under his thumb. But in reality, Anne-Marie continued to go on dates with other men during their two-year affair. She fantasized that Tom would leave his wife and start a family with her, but that never happened, and she tried to break things off with him. Tom knew about her illnesses and her medications. He knew too much and held that above her head. He sent flowers, called and emailed excessively until he wore Anne-Marie down, and she gave in to continuing, continuing the relationship. Eventually, she opened up about her relationship with Tom and expressed to others that she thought she was in danger and that he could do serious harm to her. Per Supreme Court of Delaware documents and AP News, Anne-Marie met Michael Scanlon, a successful bank executive, in September of 1995. Family and friends of Fahey recalled that the two had a rocky start, but Anne-Marie eventually fell in love with Michael. Again, per the Baltimore Sun article, Anne-Marie and Capano had a number of fights around that time. He threatened to take back all of his gifts. He called her repeatedly as she got ready for a date with Scanlon, and she told friends he was stalking her. The Delaware Online reported that on June 29th, Anne-Marie didn't show up to her brother's house for a date with Michael and didn't warn anyone that she was running late or wasn't going to be able to make it. She simply didn't show up, and to her friends and family, that was very out of the ordinary for Anne-Marie, so a few people close to her went to her apartment and had the landlord let them in. Medium.com says that the apartment looked very normal. Anne-Marie's dress that she had worn to dinner with Tom on the 27th was laying on a chair in her bedroom. Her shoes were there as well. Her purse was on the kitchen counter and it had her wallet in it, and nothing appeared to be missing, and the takeout container from the Italian restaurant was on the kitchen counter with the food untouched. However, according to the Washington Post, Anne-Marie's family was convinced she never got home that night and believed someone else returned her clothing and personal items. The apartment didn't look the way she kept it, said Kathleen Fahey Hosey, who went to her sister's apartment and reported her missing two nights after the dinner with Capano. Her usually tidy sister's bed was unmade and telephone messages had not been checked. So I have to assume that she would have been reported missing if people would have noticed sooner than two days after anyone saw or heard from Anne-Marie. But she was off of work on Friday, so she went to eat with Tom on Thursday night. She didn't have any plans on Friday, and then Saturday, she didn't show up to her brother's house, and that's when everyone realized that something was wrong, and the last person to see her was Tom. In the early hours of 3 a.m. on June 30th, police went to Tom's house to question him, but Delaware Online also reported that they went to Tom's house with the intention of searching his house and car. Tom told the police that was fine, that he had nothing to hide. He said that he took Anne-Marie to dinner on Thursday, and then he took her back to her apartment. Anne-Marie had him fix her air conditioner, and then he left around 10 p.m., and that was the last time that he had heard from Anne-Marie and the last time that he had seen her. Meanwhile, police had been combing through Anne-Marie's apartment, looking for any evidence that would point them to where she was. They found her diary, like Pinky said, with several entries about Tom, even one saying that Tom was a, quote, jealous maniac. 
A few days later, the FBI stepped in to help police with the investigation, and about this time, Tom refused to answer any more questions, and he hired three attorneys, including the Attorney General. Just when investigators thought that they had hit a dead end, some interesting evidence came to light. Towards the end of July in 1996, investigators learned that Tom purchased a new carpet on June 29th and that when interviewed, Tom's maid, Ruth, told police that when she cleaned his house on July 22nd, she thought it was weird that a love seat and carpet had been replaced. And if that wasn't enough, a worker of Tom's brother, Lewis, said that his boss, Lewis, asked him to empty out a trash bin from the construction site on July 1st. According to Delaware Online, and this is actually something that I thought too, it was weird that the construction worker remembered Lewis asking him to dump out the trash bin because I feel like that's very normal for um, like a construction site. But the worker said that he blatantly remembered it because the trash bin barely had anything in it and it could have easily fit more trash in it. So he thought it was weird that Lewis asked him to empty the bin at that very moment. I know that this is a lot of information and it feels like I keep saying, but wait, there's more. And there really is. Investigators discovered that Tom went to Happy Harry's, which I assume was is like just a general store. I'm not really sure. Um, but he used a... So hold on. <laughs> it sounds like a bar, right? Yeah. I don't... See, Carly and I, we do our research separately and... Part of the, part of the, what's the word I'm looking for? Part of the appeal to our podcast is that we kind of discuss our thoughts in real time. And this is the first time I'm seeing Happy Harry's and my mind immediately went to like a massage parlor with happy endings. (laughs) So anyway. Yeah, because like when I first read Happy Harry's, I was like, oh yeah, definitely a bar. But I think it might be a general store. Or maybe even a hardware store because when Tom went to Happy Harry's, he used a credit card to buy some things and he asked the store manager about blood remover while he was in the store. So that leads me to believe that one, it's not a massage parlor with happy endings. Two, it's not a bar. At the time that Anne Marie went missing, Tom and his wife Kathleen were still technically married, but they didn't live together at the time. At 7 a.m. on June 28th, Kathleen claimed that Tom came to her house to borrow her Chevrolet Suburban. Investigators searched Kathleen's SUV and Tom's Jeep for 11 hours, and that search yielded two spots of blood. This ultimately led to the case being reclassified as a federal kidnapping, and Tom was officially under investigation by a federal grand jury regarding the disappearance of Anne-Marie Fahey. There are very few things that happened after that, like Tom had to give saliva and blood samples to investigators, but then when October and November of 1997 rolls around, the case is blown back open. Delaware Online says that on October 8, 1997, investigators executed a search warrant for Tom's younger brother, Gerard Capano, and found a plethora of illegal things, including cocaine marijuana, and over 20 weapons. Although this stuff had nothing to do with Anne-Marie's disappearance, investigators thought it might help because the FBI told Gerard that they could definitely send him to prison for several years on the federal charge of possession of weapons by a drug user, or 
He could continue to live in his home if he cooperated with them and gave them information on Tom and the disappearance of Anne Marie. So on November 8, 1997, Gerard, along with his attorney, decided that they were ready to talk. Gerard told investigators that he helped Tom dump a body with an anchor attached to it off of Stone Harbor on June 28, 1996. Gerard went on to say that first, Tom put the body in a cooler, but it wouldn't sink, so Tom then shot a hole in the cooler, and it still wouldn't sink. That's when Tom thought of the anchor idea to make sure that the body would sink, and then he later discarded the cooler in the ocean. In addition, Gerard said that on that same day, the 28th of June, he helped Tom throw a blood-stained couch into the trash bin at their brother Lewis's construction site. Two days after Gerard decided to talk to investigators, Louis Capano decided to give them his information too. With his attorney present, Louis told investigators that on June 30th, Tom told him that he had put some of Anne Marie's personal belongings in the trash bin at his work site. But Tom acted like it wasn't a big deal and moved on. The next day, Louis got to work and saw an entire couch in the trash bin and thought that it was strange. Thomas Capano was arrested on November 12, 1997, and was held on a murder charge without bail at Gander Hill Prison, where he would await his trial and sentencing. The very next day, Delaware Online says that a fisherman came forward with a large fishing cooler that he and his friends had found in the Atlantic Ocean in July of 1996. The fisherman claimed that once he saw this on the news, he realized that the hole in the side must have been the hole that Tom shot in it, and he immediately turned it over to investigators. Capano pleaded innocence and asked for bail, but the judge denied it. However, in February of 1998, Deborah McIntyre began to cooperate with investigators. Deborah, like Anne Marie, was a mistress of Tom's, like Pinky said, and in May of 1996, Deborah said that Tom told her how scared he was of some extortionists who had been following him and wanted a gun. So she bought him a 22 caliber Beretta. Here's a brief clip of that call. I told them everything that I had told them before, which was exactly the truth, except at the end, uh, they asked me about this gun, and I was, fi- I was truthful about it. I said, I told them that uh, I bought it, and I gave it to you. You wanted it, and I gave it to you. Why did you say such a thing? Because you did. I told the truth, darling. I told the truth. Why? Why did you do that? Because I don't lie. I can't lie. I mean, it's so obvious when I when I was in that interview that I mean, I I can't lie. If I'd gone to that bail hearing and said what I was, you know, thinking of saying, it would have been terrible. You know what you've done? I've told the truth. No, no. Excuse me. Do you know what you've done to me? But I've told the truth, Tom. No, Debbie. Do you know what you've done to me? I don't know what I've done to you. Then you read my letter. But I told the truth. No, stop that. Did you read my letter? 
When Deborah said that, Tom's defense came up with a new plan, and that plan was to blame the entire murder on Deborah since she was the one who bought the gun. I also want to read this excerpt from the Medium article before we get into the trial, and um, this is verbatim, this is word for word. Before Capano's trial began in October of 1998, excerpts from Anne Marie's diary were printed in the local paper and shared with the media. If she had known, the painfully private Anne Marie would have been mortified. Sadly, some of the entries, taken out of context, presented Anne Marie as the head case Capano insisted she was, detailing her therapy, her Prozac use, and her dysfunctional relationship with food. She wasn't without her flaws and troubled behavior, but she was a victim. No matter what she did, Anne-Marie Fahey did not deserve to be killed. The trial took place throughout 1998 with many people testifying, but in January of 1999, Thomas Capano was convicted of murder, and the judge, like the jury's recommendation, sentenced Tom to be executed by lethal injection. Tom made appeals several times, and each time there was a new hearing for the appeal. But really, the story ended on September of 2011, when Tom was found dead in his prison cell after suffering from cardiac arrest. Unfortunately, this case ended without Anne-Marie's body being found, and not a lot of physical evidence. But the most damning parts of this case were testimonies from Tom's brothers, and I hope that it was enough closure for Anne-Marie's friends and family. So when I got here to Carly's tonight to record, um, we both agreed that we could have kept going with this episode. Um, Although there wasn't a lot of physical evidence, there wasn't a body, there was a lot of testimony that could have been detailed. You know, like she said, his brothers, they they spoke extensively. There were um, diary entries, there were emails, more recorded calls, so much we could have included, but, you know, it would have been a two-parter, and from history's perspective, you guys don't really respond to the two-parters that well. So, um, yeah, this is this is definitely something with a lot of meat and potatoes, something that we recommend you guys do your own research and, you know, present it to us. Give us a shout. Tell us what you think. Um, I didn't know about this one. I wasn't familiar with this one. Don't think I ever heard about it, but I was intrigued once I did start doing my research. Um, if we had, you know, more time or if, if we had uh, more access. That's another thing. I said there was a lot of audio clips and phone calls that were recorded while Tom was locked up, but I could not find it in a place where it was accessible enough for me able to for me to be able to actually rip it and place it in. So that was another factor. But uh, aside from that, what did you take away from this one? Um, I agree with you that we probably could have kept going, um, and there's a lot of information on this one. But I, I think that it kind of gets information like this with emails and journal entries and testimonies, he said, she said stuff, kind of gets lost in translation. Um, I feel like it's very boring to retell um, because it really is just a lot of, well, he said this and she said that. Um, And so, you know, being able to portray that through a podcast uh, is definitely challenging. And, um, but that does not take away from this case. Um, And I'm glad that they brought justice or 
partial justice or whatever it may be to Anne Marie's family. Um, I, I know that they wished to have uh, a body um, that would have brought more, brought more closure to them. Uh, however, that's just sometimes how things work. So I enjoyed this um, episode. I, I learned a lot. I wasn't, I didn't know a lot about it, um, but it was one of the, the ones that, you know, don't really have a voice. And so I'm glad that we could give it a voice. Okay, so we end every week with a crime of the week that's typically funny or lighthearted because we discuss pretty morbid stuff. But before we get into that, there's two things that have been on my mind this week. And they're both crimes. The first one, I don't know how many of our listeners um, are rap fans, but the first one is there's a Memphis rapper named Young Dolph who was murdered uh, either yesterday or two days ago. But he was murdered in his hometown of Memphis. And it was really sad because, you know, like within the past couple of years, a lot of times when artists, particularly rap artists, who come from impoverished neighborhoods, when they make it and they go home to visit, whether they're seeing family or whether they're trying to support their local community, they get gunned down. Um, But the reason why I bring that up is because there's a video circulating, and I don't want to add the clip, but there's a video circulating of a lady who lived in Memphis who was talking to the news, and she was just saying about how a gun law had been passed recently and pretty much anybody could get access to guns. And Memphis is also one of the, and I'm not trying to be offensive, just for lack of a better word, um, one of the least educated areas. And that's obviously because there isn't enough funding or the government isn't pumping enough um, resources into that neighborhood. It's kind of like they want to keep it impoverished and keep the people under their thumb being, you know, um, not with a lot of opportunity and not with a lot of education. But I say all that to say this, and I know this isn't a political podcast, but I think that's just an example of why it really is important to vote, not only for your president, but in your local elections, and also to just be aware of what's going on in your community. Um, Not everybody is an activist or a community organizer. I get that. It's tough work. But if you could just pay attention and maybe support those who are trying to make a difference. Um, It's not going to happen tomorrow or even next year, but, you know, help be that catalyst for change. So places like Memphis can, you know, improve. It won't be as violent. There won't be gun laws that uh, contribute to the mortality rate, to people not being able to leave the area, to people not being able to get a good education. And the second thing is, uh, Yes. The second thing, can't remember his name, something Tracy. Look it up real quick. There's a former, I believe he was a Jets running back, who was caught on camera um, just beating the mother of his child in front of Zach Stacy. Beating the mother of his child in front of their five-month-old child. And when I say beating, he was like throwing her around like a rag doll. There isn't much to say about it, really, but that's something that I just kind of wanted to bring awareness to. 
it it just it's one of those crimes that you're not going to hear about it on a true crime podcast because um it probably wasn't an isolated incident but they have one isolated incident caught on film and she's survived thank god and i think it's just another instance of a man with a little bit of power and a little bit of money like i said he's a former nfl player so i don't know his status really but just when when there's powerful men like that they just constantly take advantage of whether it be the system or women or children or other men who don't have the same stature um it's just just disheartening to see and unfortunately it's a double-edged sword because you're glad that there is video because they can prosecute him once they get him but on the other hand that's going to be something that lives on the internet forever and that's going to trigger her and her child and it's going to trigger other victims of domestic violence so that's you know that's not our crime of the week but that's something that came to light this week two things that came to light this week that just have been on my mind and made me kind of sad it's just like the world we live in sucks (sighs) okay now let's laugh so the crime of the week this week headline reads woman pleads guilty to trying to hire fake hitman to kill ex-husband okay initial thoughts if i wanted to kill somebody or have someone killed i don't think i would go to rent a hitman.com but then again how do you find how do you find hitmen yeah like how do you craigslist like an ad in the paper or rent a hitman.com anyway this story is based in monroe county michigan a rock one woman has pled guilty to attempting to hire a hitman through a fake website to kill her ex-husband her name is wendy lynn ween wine uh, 52 pled guilty to charges of solicitation of murder and using a computer to commit a crime on november 12th Uh, The terms of her plea agreement include a cap of 108 months in prison on the minimum sentence. She will appear before Monroe Circuit Judge Daniel White for sentencing on January 13th of 2022. So this actually happened in spring of 2020, but it's just now getting uh, (laughs) just now starting the beginning of prosecution. Um, So police were contacted by the owner of the website titled Rent a Hitman after she filled out a service request form and asked for a consultation with a professional to help her with an issue regarding her ex-husband, according to Michigan State Police. The domain was created as a cybersecurity test site, police said, adding the website owner was concerned that she was serious and could be attempting to kill the man. Despite using a pseudonym, Um, She completed the request with her personal (laughs) identifying information. Uh, With assistance from two state police undercover narcotic units, um, another undercover officer posed as a hitman. Um, On July 17th, they met with her and um, she, what was it? She offered 5,000. She offered the undercover officer 5,000 to kill her ex-husband and provided him with an upfront payment to cover travel expenses. Soon after handing over the payment, she was arrested and taken to jail. So if any of y'all happen to know 
the um, discreet way <laughs> to hire a hitman, you can send us an anonymous email. We ain't gonna snitch, but I'm genuinely curious. Um, but yeah, but what do you think about hiring a hitman? <laughs> I mean, I don't think I would be that dumb to do it that way but also you're right I don't know I have no idea where I would even start um so let's hope that I don't have to to figure that out um but yeah that's uh what really just sent me was when it said um it said that she felt she filled out a service request form and asked for a consultation with a professional to help her with an issue regarding her ex-husband her issue is her ex-husband. He's the issue. That's the issue. It's not an... That's... Wow. What an idiot. Oh. You got anything? Nope. That's all we have for today, I guess. Um, we are... Don't forget, we are off next week for Thanksgiving. So everybody have a happy Thanksgiving. Um, and I guess we will see you the following week. Also... Thanksgiving happens to fall on Carly's birthday. So send her some love. That's all we got. Holla, baby, Flamingo.